Welcome to the Come Follow Me podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, featuring BYU devotionals and forums specially curated to accompany your weekly Come Follow Me studies. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. A number of years ago, Brother Wilkins' grandfather, Harold B. Lee, said in a conference that in his many years of church experience that he had learned that the most inspired preaching and teaching was always accompanied by beautiful and inspiring music. And I want you to know that I'm grateful to be sustained by that wonderful testimony we've just heard. I'm honored to be asked to speak at this devotional assembly this morning. Because the weekly devotionals at Brigham Young University have been such a significant part of my life, I've taken this invitation very seriously. My topic is what we believe. Sooner or later, you and I will be approached by men and women not of our faith, persons either sincerely interested in what we believe or else opposed to much of what we stand for. This is particularly true as the Church grows and as our influence spreads throughout the world. Perhaps it would be worthwhile for us to entertain a few questions about what we believe, questions frequently asked of the Latter-day Saints, questions concerning Scripture, God, Christ, and salvation. For example, question one. How can the Latter-day Saints justify having additional books of Scripture and adding to the Christian canon of Scripture? I remember very well sitting in a seminar on biblical studies at an Eastern University many years ago. One of the things that stands out in my mind is our discussion of the canon of Scripture. For at least two hours, the instructor had emphasized that the word canon referring, of course, to the biblical books that are generally included in the Judeo-Christian collection, was the rule of faith, the standard against which we measure what is acceptable in belief and practice. He also stated that the canon, if if the word meant anything at all, was closed, fixed, set, and established. He must have stressed those words ten times as he wrote them over and over on the blackboard. I noticed in our second session on this topic that the instructor seemed a bit uneasy. I remember thinking that something must be wrong. Without warning, he stopped what he was doing, banged his fist on the table, turned to me and said, Mr. Millett, will you please explain to this group the Latter-day Saint concept of canon given your people's acceptance of the Book of Mormon and other books of Scripture beyond the Bible? I was startled. I was stunned. I was certainly surprised. I paused for several seconds, looked up at the blackboard, saw the now very familiar words under the word canon, and said somewhat shyly, well, I, I suppose you could say that the Latter-day Saints believe the canon of Scripture is open, flexible, and expanding. We then had a really fascinating discussion. Joseph Smith loved the Bible. It was through pondering upon certain verses in the epistle of James that he felt directed to call upon God in prayer. Most of his sermons, writings, and letters are laced with quotations or paraphrasing summaries of biblical passages and precepts from both the Old and the New Testaments. The prophet once remarked that one can see God's handwriting in the sacred volume, and he who reads it oftenest will like it best. 
From his earliest days, however, he did not believe the Bible was complete or that religious difficulties could necessarily be handled by turning to the Old or New Testaments for help. Nor did he believe in either the inerrancy or the infallibility of the Bible. From what we can draw from the scriptures relative to the teaching of heaven, the prophet once stated, we're induced to think that much instruction has been given to man since the beginning which we do not possess now. We have what we have, and the Bible contains what it does contain. But to say that God never said anything more to man than there is there recorded would be saying at once that we have at last received a revelation, for it must require one to advance thus far. That's the end of the quote from the prophet Joseph. Occasionally, we hear certain Latter-day Saint teachings described as unbiblical or of a particular doctrine being contradictory to the Bible. Let's be clear on this matter. The Bible is one of the books within our standard works, and thus our doctrines and our practices are in harmony with the Bible. There are times, of course, when Latter-day Revelation provides clarification or enhancement of the intended meaning in the Bible, but addition to the canon of Scripture is not the same as rejection of the canon of Scripture. Supplementation is not the same as contradiction. All of the prophets, including the Savior himself, were sent to bring new light and knowledge to the world. In many cases, new Scripture came as a result of their ministry. That new Scripture did not invalidate what went before, nor did it close the door to subsequent revelation. We feel deep gratitude for the Holy Scriptures, but we do not worship Scripture, nor do we feel it appropriate to set up stakes and bounds to the works and ways of the Almighty, to tell God essentially, thus far and no more. As the Lord declared through Nephi, wherefore, because that ye have a Bible, ye need not suppose that it contains all my words, neither need ye suppose that I have not caused more to be written. In short, we believe God has spoken through modern prophets, restored his everlasting gospel, delivered new truths, and commissioned us to make them known to the world. We feel it would be unchristian not to share what has been communicated to us. Question two. What do the Latter-day Saints really believe about God? Is it true that they believe man can become as God? Joseph Smith's first vision represents the beginning of the revelation of God to man in this dispensation. We will no doubt spend a lifetime seeking to understand the doctrinal profundity of that great theophany. This appearance of the Father and Son in upstate New York had the effect of challenging those creeds of Christendom out of which the doctrine of the Trinity evolved, a doctrine that evolved from efforts to reconcile Christian theology with Greek philosophy. President Gordon B. Hinckley has observed, to me it is a significant and marvelous thing that in establishing and opening this dispensation, our Father did so with a revelation of himself and of his Son, Jesus Christ, as if to say to all the world that he was weary of the attempts of men, earnest though these attempts might have been, to define and describe him. The experience of Joseph Smith, President Hinckley continued, in a few moments in the grove on a spring day in 1820, brought more light and knowledge and understanding of the personality and reality and substance of God and his beloved Son than men had arrived at during centuries of speculation. That's the end of the quote from President Hinckley.
By revelation, Joseph Smith came to know that the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost constitute the Godhead. From the beginning, the prophet Joseph taught that the members of the Godhead are one in purpose, one in mind, one in glory, one in attributes and powers, but separate persons. God is the father of the spirits of all men and women, the source of light and truth, the embodiment of all godly attributes and gifts, and the supreme power and intelligence over all things. From the book of Moses, we learn that among the ancients, God the Father was called man of holiness, and thus his only begotten son is the son of man of holiness, or the son of man. The title man of holiness opens us to a deeper understanding of deity. We believe that God the Father is an exalted man, a corporeal being, a personage of flesh and bones. That God has a physical body is one of the most important of all truths restored in this dispensation. It is inextricably tied to such doctrines as the immortality of the soul, the literal resurrection, eternal marriage, and the continuation of the family unit into eternity. In his corporeal or physical nature, God can be in only one place at a time. His divine nature is such, however, that his glory, his power, and his influence, meaning his Holy Spirit, fills the immensity of space and is the means by which he is omnipresent and through which law and light and life are extended to us. The Father's physical body does not limit his capacity or detract one whit from his infinite holiness any more than Christ's resurrected body did so. Interestingly enough, research by our own Professor David Paulson of the philosophy department indicates that the idea of God's corporeality, his physical body, was taught in the early Christian church into the fourth and fifth centuries before being lost to the knowledge of the people. On the one hand, we worship a divine being with whom we can identify. That is to say, his infinity does not preclude either his immediacy or his intimacy. In the day that God created man, the scriptures attest, in the likeness of God made he him. In the image of his own body, male and female, created he them. God is not simply a spirit influence, a force in the universe, or the first great cause. When we pray our Father, which art in heaven, we mean what we say. We believe God is comprehensible, knowable, approachable, and like his beloved son, touched with the feeling of our infirmities. On the other hand, our God is God. There is no knowledge of which the Father is ignorant and no power he does not possess. Scriptural passages that speak of him being the same yesterday, today, and forever clearly have reference to his divine attributes, his love, justice, constancy, and willingness to bless his children. In addition, President Joseph Fielding Smith explained that from eternity to eternity means from the spirit existence through the probation which we are in and then back again to the eternal existence which will follow. Surely this is everlasting, for when we receive the resurrection, we will never die. We all existed in the first eternity. I think I can say of myself and others, we are from eternity and we will be to eternity everlasting if we receive the exaltation. That's the end of the quote. We come to the earth to take a physical body, be schooled and gain experience, 
experience in this second estate that we could not have in the first estate, the pre-mortal life. We then strive to keep the commandments and grow in faith and spiritual graces until we're prepared to go where God and Christ are. Eternal life consists in being with God. In addition, it entails being like God. A study of Christian history reveals that the doctrine of the deification of man was taught at least into the fifth century by such notables as Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, Justin Martyr, Athanasius, and Augustine. Because we know that many plain and precious truths were taken from the Bible before it was compiled, we might not agree with some of what was taught about deification by such Christian thinkers, but it's clear that the idea was not foreign to the people of the early church. For that matter, no less a modern Christian theologian than C.S. Lewis recognized the logical and theological extension of being transformed by Christ. The Son of God became a man, Lewis pointed out, to enable men to become sons of God. Further, Lewis has explained, the command, be ye perfect, is not idealistic gas, nor is it a command to do the impossible. He is going to make us into creatures that can obey that command. He said in the Bible that we were gods, and he's going to make good his words. If we let him, for we can prevent him if we choose, he will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a god or goddess, dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine, a bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we're in for, nothing less. He meant what he said. That's from C.S. Lewis. All men and women, like Christ, are made in the image and likeness of God. And so it is neither robbery nor heresy for the children of God to aspire to be like God. Like any parent, our Heavenly Father would want his children to become and be all that he is. Godhood comes through overcoming the world through the atonement becoming heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, who is the natural heir, and thus inheriting all things just as Jesus inherits all things. The faithful are received into the church of the firstborn, meaning they inherit as though they were the firstborn. In that glorified state, we will be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus, receive his glory, and be one with him and with the Father. Although we know from modern revelation that Godhood comes through the receipt of eternal life, we do not believe we will ever, worlds without end, unseat or oust God the Eternal Father, His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. Those holy beings are and forever will be the gods we worship. Even though we believe in the ultimate deification of man, I'm unaware of any authoritative statement in LDS literature that suggests that we will ever worship any being other than the ones within the Godhead. We believe in one God in the sense that we love and serve one Godhead, one divine presidency, each of whom possesses all of the attributes of Godhood. In short, God is not of another species, nor is he the great unknowable one. He is indeed our Father in heaven. He has revealed a plan whereby we might enjoy happiness in this world and dwell with him and be like him in the world to come. Question three.
Do the Latter-day Saints believe that salvation comes through their own works rather than by the grace of Christ? Are the Latter-day Saints saved Christians? The theological debate over whether we're saved by grace or by works is a fruitless argument. It's much like asking which blade in a pair of scissors is most necessary. Latter-day Saints have often been critical of those who stress salvation by grace alone, while we have often been criticized for a type of works righteousness. The gospel is, in fact, a gospel covenant, a two-way promise. The Lord agrees to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, to forgive our sins, to lift our burdens, to renew our souls, to recreate our nature, to raise us from the dead, and qualify us for glory hereafter. At the same time, we promise to do what we can do, to receive the ordinances of salvation, love and serve one another, and do all in our power to put off the natural man and, and deny ourselves of ungodliness. We believe that more is required of men and women than a verbal expression of faith in the Lord, more than a confession with the lips that we've received Christ into our hearts. The scriptures of the Restoration add perspective and balance to the majestic teachings of the Apostle Paul on the matter of salvation by grace. We know without question that the power to save us, to change us, to renew our souls is in Christ. True faith, however, always manifests itself in faithfulness. Good works evidence our faith, our desire to remain in covenant with Christ, but they are not sufficient. The real question is not whether I am saved by grace or by works, but rather, in whom do I trust? On whom do I rely? Too often we're prone to view grace as that increment of goodness, that final gift of God that will make up the difference and thereby boost us into the celestial kingdom after all we can do. To be sure, we will need a full measure of divine assistance to become celestial material. But the grace of God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, is available to us every hour of every day of our lives. True grace, as one non-LDS writer has suggested, is more than just a giant freebie opening the door to heaven in the sweet by and by, but leaving us to wallow in sin and the bitter here and now. Grace is God presently at work in our lives. The grace of God is a precious gift, an enabling power to face life with quiet courage, to do things we could never do on our own. The great physician does more than forgive sins. He ministers relief to the disconsolate, comfort to the bereaved, confidence to those who wrestle with infirmities and feelings of inadequacy, strength and peace to those who have been battered and scarred by the ironies of this life. Few things would be more serious than encouraging lip service to God, but discouraging obedience and faithful discipleship. On the other hand, surely nothing could be more offensive to God than a smug self-assurance that comes from trusting in one's own works or relying upon one's own strength. Understanding this sacred principle, the relationship between the grace of an infinite being and the works of finite man is not easy, but it is immensely rewarding. The more we learn to trust the Lord and rely upon his merits and mercy, the less anxious we become about life here and hereafter. Thus, if you have really handed yourself over to God, C.S. Lewis wisely remarked, it must follow 
that you're trying to obey him, but trying in a new way, a less worried way. Are we then saved Christians? Well, whereas the ultimate blessings of salvation do not come until the next life, there is a sense in which people in this life may enjoy the assurance of salvation and the peace that accompanies that knowledge. True faith in Christ produces hope in Christ, not worldly wishing, but expectation, anticipation, assurance. As the Apostle Paul wrote, the Holy Spirit provides the earnest of our inheritance, the promise or evidence that we're on course, in covenant, and thus in line for full salvation in the world to come. That is to say, the Spirit of God operating in our lives is like the Lord's earnest money on us, His sweet certification that He seriously intends to save us with an everlasting salvation. Thus, if we're striving to cultivate the gift of the Holy Ghost, we are living in what might be called a saved condition. One of the most respected evangelical theologians, John Stott, has written the following, quote, Salvation is a big and comprehensive word. It embraces the totality of God's saving work from beginning to end. In fact, salvation has three tenses, past, present, and future. He continues, I have been saved in the past from the penalty of sin by a crucified Savior. I am being saved in the present from the power of sin by a living Savior. And I shall be saved in the future from the very presence of sin by a coming Savior. If therefore you were to ask me, are you saved? There is only one correct biblical answer which I could give you, yes and no. Yes, he continues, in the sense that by the sheer grace and mercy of God, through the death of Jesus Christ my Savior, he has forgiven my sins, justified me, and reconciled me to himself. But no, in the sense that I still have a fallen nature and live in a fallen world and have a corruptible body, and I'm longing for my salvation to be brought to its triumphant completion. End of quote. President David O. McKay taught that the gospel of Jesus Christ as revealed to the prophet Joseph Smith is in very deed, in every way, the power of God unto salvation. It is salvation here, here and now. It gives to every man the perfect life, here and now, as well as hereafter. Too many of us, brothers and sisters, wrestle with feelings of inadequacy, struggle with hopelessness, and in general are just much too anxious about our standing before God. It's important to keep the ultimate goal of exaltation ever before us, but it seems so much more profitable to focus on fundamentals and on the here and now, staying in covenant, being dependable and true to our promises, cultivating the gift of the Holy Ghost. President Brigham Young taught that our work is a work of the present. The salvation, he said, the salvation we're seeking is for the present and sought correctly, it can be obtained and be continually enjoyed. If it continues today, it is upon the same principle that it will continue tomorrow, the next day, the next week, or the next year, and he added, we might say, the next eternity. In short, salvation is in Christ, and our covenant with Christ, our trust in His power to redeem us, should be demonstrated in how we live. The influence of the Holy Ghost in our lives is a sign to us that we're on course in Christ and thus in line 
for full salvation. Question four. Are the Latter-day Saints Christian? Or do they, as some have suggested, worship a different Jesus? We believe in Jesus of Nazareth, in the one sent of the Father to bind up the brokenhearted and proclaim liberty to the captives. For us, the Jesus of history is indeed the Christ of faith. He was and is the only begotten Son of God in the flesh. While some may exclude us from the category of Christian for this or that doctrinal matter, our behavior must be consistent with our profession. Those who claim new life in the Spirit are expected to walk in the Spirit. Are we Christians, President Gordon B. Hinckley asked? Of course we are. No one can honestly deny that. We may be somewhat different from the traditional pattern of Christianity, but no one believes more literally in the redemption wrought by the Lord Jesus Christ. He continues, no one believes more fundamentally that he was the Son of God, that he died for the sins of mankind, that he rose from the grave, and that he is the living, resurrected Son of the living Father. All of our doctrine, President Hinckley continued, all of our religious practice stems from that one basic doctrinal position. We believe in God, the Eternal Father, and in His Son, Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Ghost. This is the first article of our faith, and all else flows therefrom. That's the end of the quote. In the long run, brothers and sisters, all we can do is live what we preach and bear testimony of what we feel in our hearts and know in our minds. While we do not want to be misunderstood, and we certainly would like for others to recognize the centrality of Christ in our lives, we do not require the imprimatur of the religious world to substantiate our claim. We are who we are, and we know who we are, and if all the world should think otherwise, so be it. Our primary thrust in the religious world is not to court favor. Our desire to build bridges of understanding does not excuse us from the obligation to maintain our distinctive position in the religious world. Our strength lies in our distinctiveness, for we have something to offer the world, something of great worth. No one wants to be spurned, misunderstood, or misrepresented, but sometimes such is the cost of discipleship. As to whether we worship a different Jesus, we say again, we accept and endorse the testimony of the New Testament writers. Jesus is the promised Messiah, the resurrection and the life, literally the light of the world. Everything that testifies of his divine birth, his goodness, his transforming power, and his godhood, we embrace enthusiastically. He has broken the bands of death and lives today. All this we know. But we know much more about the Christ because of what has been made known through Latter-day Prophets. President Brigham Young thus declared, We, the Latter-day Saints, take the liberty of believing more than our Christian brethren. We not only believe the Bible, but the whole plan of salvation that Jesus has given to us. Do we differ from others who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, he asked? No, only in believing more. Our conduct and our way of life cannot be separated from our doctrine, for what we believe empowers and directs what we do. A number of years ago, an article appeared in Christianity Today entitled, Why Your Neighbor Joined the Mormon Church. Five reasons were given. One, the Latter-day Saints show genuine love and concern by taking care of their people. 
Two, they strive to build the family unit. Three, they provide for their young people. Four, theirs is a layman's church. Five, they believe that divine revelation is the basis for their practices. After a brief discussion of each of the above five points, the author of the article concluded this way. In a day when many are hesitant to claim that God has said anything definitive, the Mormons stand out in contrast and many people are ready to listen to what the Mormons think the voice of God says. It is tragic that their message is false, but it is nonetheless a lesson to us that people are many times ready to hear a voice of authority. Well, the Savior taught something about the importance of judging things, didn't he? Prophets, for example, by their fruits, by the product of their ministry and their teachings. He also explained that every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Evil trees, brothers and sisters, cannot bring forth good fruit. Works of men eventually come to naught, but that which is of God cannot be overthrown. In short, we proclaim that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. We have taken his name upon us, eagerly acknowledge the redeeming power of his blood and seek to emulate his perfect life. Let me close by sharing with you three simple suggestions learned through both sad and sweet experience on how we might effectively deal with difficult questions posed by those not of our faith. First, stay in control. There's nothing more frustrating than knowing the truth, loving the truth, sincerely desiring to share the truth, and yet being unable to communicate our deepest feelings to another who sees things differently. Argument or disputation over sacred things cause us to forfeit the Spirit of God and thus the confirming power of our message. We teach and we testify. Contention is unbecoming of one called to publish peace and thus bless our brothers and sisters. In the words of Elder Marvin J. Ashton many years ago, we have no time for contention. We only have time to be about our Father's business. Second, stay in order. The Savior taught that gospel prerequisites should be observed when teaching sacred things. A person, for example, who knows very little about our doctrine will probably not understand or appreciate our teachings concerning temples, sealing powers, eternal life, or the deification of man. Joseph Smith the prophet explained that if we start right, it is easy to go right all the time. But if we start wrong, we may go wrong, and it will be a hard matter to get right. It's always wise, brothers and sisters, to lay a proper foundation for what's to be said. The truth can then flow more freely. The apostle Peter is said to have explained to Clement, the teaching of all doctrine has a certain order. And there are some things which must be delivered first, others in the second place, and others in the third, and so, all in their order. And if these things be delivered in their order, they become plain. But if they be brought forward out of order, they will seem to be spoken against reason. Third, stay in context. As we've already noted, we love the Bible and cherish, cherish its messages. But the Bible is not the source of our doctrine or authority, nor is much to be gained through efforts to prove the truthfulness of the restored gospel from the Bible. Ours is an independent revelation. 
We know what we know about the premortal existence, priesthood, celestial marriage, baptism for the dead, the postmortal spirit world, degrees of glory, and a myriad of other subjects because of what God has made known through latter-day prophets, not because we're able to identify a few biblical allusions to these matters. Some of our greatest difficulties in handling questions about our faith come when we try to establish specific doctrines of the Restoration from the Bible alone. There is consummate peace and spiritual power to be derived from being loyal to those things the Lord has communicated to us in our dispensation. Our main task, President Ezra Taft Benson once said, is to declare the gospel and do it effectively. We are not obligated to answer every objection. Every man eventually is backed up to the wall of faith, and there he must make his stand. I testify to the truthfulness of these remarkable doctrines about which we've been speaking. I know by the witness of the Holy Ghost to my soul that God is our Father. Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. Joseph Smith was and is a prophet of the living God, and that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is indeed the kingdom of God on earth. These things I know because I have studied and searched and sought to understand. These things I know because I have read and pondered and prayed and pleaded for light and knowledge. What has come to me, brothers and sisters, is as settling and soothing to my heart as it is stimulating and enlarging to my mind. This work is true, and because it is true, it will triumph. The First Presidency of the Church in 1907 declared, Our motives are not selfish. Our purpose is not petty and earthbound. We contemplate the human race, past, present, and yet to come, as immortal beings, for whose salvation it is our mission to labor. And to this work, broad as eternity, and deep as the love of God, we devote ourselves now and forever. I pray that we will come to know what we believe by study and by faith, and then with boldness but quiet dignity, share those sacred saving truths with others. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to the Come Follow Me podcast presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU Speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.